Hello, friends. This is David Pasqualone with the Remarkable People Podcast, Season 2, Episode 33, the episode that almost never happened, the Seth Meyers story. The Remarkable People Podcast. Check it out. The Remarkable People Podcast. Listen. Do. Repeat. For life. Seth, thanks for being here today again, brother. Hey, good morning. Good to see you, David. Oh, it's good seeing you too. And as the listeners, just so you know, Seth and I battled on March 30th to get an episode recorded. We had a great time, had an amazing interview, and then we had technical difficulties that not only Seth has never encountered, not only I've never encountered, but the software company that I use went all the way from the engineering director to the CEO. No one ever saw the problems that we had. So this, I know, is a meeting that you need to hear, that I need to hear. It's an honor we get to hear, but Satan's trying to stop it. So at this time, we have my good friend, Seth Myers. Seth and I met at college, traveled together with Neighborhood Bile Time. We both went off into the world. Seth always had a passion for God and for people and for missions. He's a church planner among the Songans of South Africa. He's married to Amy, father of five, and just a great human. And at this time, we have the privilege to hear the Seth Meyer story. So Seth, thank you for being here today. I appreciate it so much, brother. And like we talked about in the last episode, the format of the show is you're just going to share your story with us. We're going to go through the past. We're going to bring us up to the present, where you're at, and what what God's doing through you and your ministry out there in Africa, and then where you're going in the future and how we can help you and your people grow. So at this time, Seth, share your story, man. Tell us about Seth Myers and and your life. Where did you start off, brother? David, those are kind words of introduction, but uh, I recently read the last poem in a book of Puritan poems uh, called Worthy is the Lamb by Soli Deo Gloria. And the poem is by a Scottish preacher from 150 years ago in which he uh, sets forward a number of paradoxes and demonstrates exactly the heart of a Christian. And I feel, I feel that myself uh, constantly that there are, there are so many conflicting desires in my heart. I only wish that I were worthy of the grace and kindness of our Lord. Uh, but being unworthy makes, uh, makes me more grateful. <laughs> um, my name is Seth, and I'm 42. I grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, or near there. I grew up in a Christian home, and I don't think that can be, that can't be emphasized enough how valuable it is to take your children to church to just be a mom or dad that love the Lord Jesus and take your children to worship God at a Bible teaching uh, Christian church constantly. And my parents did that. So I made a profession of faith when I was very young. I don't know exactly when I was converted, but I I know that now um, I am trusting in Christ. I know that I'm hiding in him. I know that there's nothing good in me except what he does in me. And I, I remember the verse, John 19, 30, it is finished. 
when I was a young boy. I remember that verse uh, being very powerful in my heart. But how God, how God drew me, that's, that's his grace and mysteries. Uh, I went to Pensacola uh, Christian College and studied to be a missionary. I was always very zealous to uh, evangelize from 1989 when I surrendered my life to be a missionary as a little boy. Don't mock children when they, when they commit themselves to Christ or to serve the Lord. I was 11 when I surrendered my life to be a missionary. And uh, when I was 17, I went to Russia and Romania uh, for a summer. Then through college, I got interested in tribes, tribal areas, islands, and was set to go to Papua New Guinea. Uh, Maybe you know that there are more languages per square mile in Papua New Guinea than any country in the world. 800 languages in just a little dot of a a country about the size of New York, but it has um, 800 languages and a very poor place because it's neglected, because it's an island. And I thought to go there. When I finished college, I had already taken several mission trips, and I was asked to be a, an assistant pastor at a church in Chicago. So I went there, but I told them up front that my goal is to go overseas to plant churches, and they accepted me. They were very kind. I look back at, I was, uh, as one professor said about me in college, I was all fire and no light. <laughs> and I, I thank God for honest professors. Young men need to be taken down. They're very proud. Um, I'm not sure if older men get better. We just, our pride mutates into other forms, but it is good. It's a good gift when God gives you someone who will humble you and put you yeah, in your place. Yeah, they always say your friends tell you what you want to hear. Your good friends tell you what you need to hear. Yeah, that's a good quote. <laughs> uh, so, hey, that man at, at school told me, you're all fire and no light. So I thank God for that. Uh, and then, okay, that reminds me of a similar event that was really life-changing. Maybe the, maybe the greatest change in my life outside of my conversion was when I was at the, the church, Bethel Baptist in Schaumburg, and I was preaching often because it's a large ministry with a Christian school And I wasn't always preaching in the main worship services, but in the Christian school or in the old folks ministry. And after I preached one time, the youth pastor there, who was about my age, but I had been at the church longer than him, he asked me, where did I learn to preach? And I had finished preaching feeling as if I'm a good public speaker. I was energetic. I was funny. I was powerful. I would tell stories about someone in a car accident. And the man asked me, where did you learn to preach? And he did it a little bit with a, with a a confrontational air. Where did you learn to preach like that? And I was very defensive. And I remember looking across his desk at a peer and trying to defend myself. But that night, I can still remember this at 23 years old, That night, I went back, not yet married, and thought, what am I doing? I don't even know how to preach. I'm I'm speaking in public. I'm being funny. I have a good pulpit or platform uh, persona. 
but I don't know how to teach the Bible. And that started a journey for me of trying to learn how to teach and preach the Bible. And I thank God. I went to Africa shortly after that. And I show up in this little village in Limpopo province, about an hour from Zimbabwe, a village that has no electricity, no running water, and they don't know English. And I've got a little notebook trying to write down Songo words. And so I start preaching in English to youth that are gathering on Friday. And I just decide to preach verse by verse through the book of Revelation. (laughs) And then I go verse by verse through the book of Acts. And by the time I got done with those two books, I realized I need to stop making up sermons and start saying what the what the Bible says. That was probably the biggest change. And it was that man that, uh, that had the grace. I think maybe he was a little harsh, but maybe not. Maybe I was just a, a cupcake and I need to grow up. Yeah, but I thank God for that. Yeah. Hey, man, we all do. And sometimes we need that slap in the face in Christian love, right? So yeah. but before we go on, let's set a couple premises. We're, we have people listening right now from all over the world all different backgrounds, all different cultures, all different ethnicities. So let's do some framework. Uh, before we go on, when you use the term Christian, define Christian. Like, What's a Christian? A biblical Christian, not a worldly Christian. Hey, I recognize there's going to be a lot of different people listening. So if you are a Muslim or a Buddhist or just secular, um, hey, we're glad you're listening. I'm a Christian. And what, what I mean by that, is I'm hiding behind Jesus. Jesus is really good, and I'm really bad. And so I'm hiding behind him. And if someone wants to say it's a crutch, no, it's much, much more than a crutch. It's my whole life. I can't do anything because John 15 says, without me, you can do nothing. So I don't believe I can do anything good unless Jesus is somehow helping and inspiring that. So I just am hiding behind Christ, trusting in him, resting in him. And that's what I mean by a Christian. I mean that, that I'm, I'm completely hidden and trusting and resting in him. That's it. All right. Beautiful, beautiful. And one more term you use that I want to just define for the audience. You mentioned a moment of conversion. What's that mean? Uh, Again, whoever's listening, I'm glad you're here. Thank you for being kind enough to listen to, to what, what's happened in my life for 40 years. But uh, I believe the Bible, and the Bible says in John 8, 44, you are from your father, the devil. And all Jesus meant when he said those words is simply that because of Adam and Eve's sin, we are all spiritually darkened. So there has to be a time when our eyes are opened or else we will never see. And Jesus said, you will never see the kingdom of God. So my eyes were opened when I was a young boy, and I don't know the exact age. I grew up in a family that went to church, but my eyes weren't opened until sometime when I was a young boy, and I, I began to see, maybe like a little puppy, their eyes open over a series of days. But there's a point when their eyes are closed, and there's a point when their eyes are open, and I can't tell the exact point when it exactly happened, but I know it's happened. Yes, absolutely. And for all of us, like for me, I grew up in an environment that always spoke of God and people believed in God. And I grew up thinking, all right, well, what's real? Is there a God? Is there not a God? And then 
for me, the moment of conversion was when I was 12. I heard a man named Tim Lee speak on hell. And I was with a youth group and I was like, wow, what is this hell? And I'm like, okay, well, I definitely belong there. And then I was like, well, I don't want to go there. And they spoke mm-hmm. about God and his love and how he sent Jesus as a sacrifice. And we're filled with the Holy Spirit when we accept him. And that was the moment of my conversion. And like Seth said, where I might have remembered this specific day, Seth knows there was a specific day in his life. There's always that specific moment, just like when we're born. Seth's 42, I'm 43. I don't remember the day I came out of my mother, but I know what happened. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so, so that's what we're talking about to set the frame of reference. Now, again, all truth, everything we're talking about, you're going to see if you practice in your own life, no matter what you believe, is going to work. But it's because of God. And all truth yes. comes from the Bible. And that's what Seth and I, both of us have at heart. We want you to know and love and feel that peace and joy. But today's episode is primarily about what's it like to be a missionary and Seth's story. And okay, if you're interested in being a missionary, what to expect realistically. So thank you so much, Seth, for sharing already. And I know we're just scratching the surface here. So you go to college, you get out, you're speaking at a church. You go out and now you hit the real field. And now you're in a place where life is changing. It's vastly different. Talk about that. What was it like? First off, what was it like even getting to the mission field? Talk about that experience. Because there's some people, you and I have discussed this. There's some people who spend years trying to get to the mission field. And I know God had a totally different approach, thankfully, for you. So talk about from college getting to the mission field. Uh, The common way that many Christian missionaries leave America and move to different parts of the world is called deputation. And what they mean by deputation is the process of going to churches and asking them to look at your work and support it. Many missionaries take years to do that. And I was able to do that in three months rather than three years. And One of the ways I did that was I cut our salary in half. So mission boards will commonly say you have to have a certain amount of money. And it's usually much, much like 10 times more than the average person in a poor place will get. So that was difficult for me to grapple with. How is it that these people are going to live and I'm going to live at just a dramatic level above them can't I live anyhow, any way cheaper? So I tried to set a lower budget. And since I went single, I could kind of do a test run and see if it will work. So I set the budget lower and I was encouraged to double my support or to double the amount that I was asking for. I started with $2,000 a month, which for many people in Africa where I live in Minnesota, that, that would be a huge sum. Um, Guys in my church right now, if they can get a job for $300 a month, they will feel like they are making a good amount of money. So here I'm coming with $2,000. So uh, the first thing was we cut the, cut the salary in half and just had to find cheaper ways to fill in all those line items or just cut the line item on the budget. And the second thing was we only worked at churches, or I, I went to churches that were willing to consider me coming for a week to have to stay with the church for a longer amount of time. Commonly Christian missionaries will come in for a Sunday night or a Wednesday night, and they'll be there about three hours with the people. So the people can't meet them 
They can't test their gifts. They can't ask them questions. They can't find out if they're a man who loves his wife, if he's a man of character, is he lazy, does he sleep in? And I think those things, especially the character things, are vitally important. So I went to the church, each church, for about a week and then asked them to consider taking me on for 10, 10% of my support. So I only needed 10 churches to do that. I think I had eight churches when I left the U.S. and a couple families. And the Lord has always met our needs. And um, sometimes we have so much that I've actually asked the churches, can you stop giving because we have more than we need? <laughs> so he's always been faithful to us and we've been blessed. Yeah, and I can, for the listeners out there, our friends, Seth's being real, because I remember being frustrated with you in, after college. I got out, God blessed me with a great job, and I'm like, hey, Seth, what can we do to help? You're like, man, I'm good. God's blessed. I'm like, no, man, what can we do? What can we send you? All these other missionaries, not all, but most of the other missionaries out there, like you said, they're on deputation. It's like an extended vacation, and then they get out to the mission field, and they're asking for lazy boy recliners, and Seth's out there, and I'm trying to support him. He's like, man, I'm good. I'm like, there's got to be something. He's like, well, my wife really likes macaroni and cheese. So I remember sending you macaroni and cheese because you couldn't get it out there. So They still don't have mac and cheese, but they do have cheese now. They do and have you cheese can, now. So she makes it. Oh, uh, hey, let okay. me comment on that. There's a pastor in Washington, D.C. named Mark Dever. And Mark Dever, I believe he wrote an article years ago that said, you can't give a good missionary too much money. Yo, oh, oh, let me just qualify that. I think what Dever meant is if you have a real um, zeal for God's kingdom and you have a wise, thoughtful way of approaching life and ministry, then you're always going to find a way to put money in a God-honoring way that is not wasted on bigger air conditioners. And air conditioners aren't always a waste. But my point is that using money is a very difficult skill and it's hard if you're a businessman and you're making $3 million and you say, I'm going to answer to God 3 million times now. I got to use this in a way that I'll be, I will be faithful and he'll say, well done, good and faithful servant. So it's actually difficult. So finding a man or a ministry who is careful who knows, okay, these are the right things to put money into and these are not. Uh, that's, that's actually a very important thing. And I often look for the best ways to put money in because some people will just so graciously, led by the Spirit of God, just send money. And I'll think, I didn't expect this. Uh, about three weeks ago, someone just deposited money in my bank. I don't even know who it is. It's about $300. And I thought, uh huh. But I just found this man and I thought, the next time God gives money, I'm going to give to this guy. There was a young Christian guy, 27 years old, who doesn't have a job, but he's trying to, he's trying to start as a builder. So I had led him to Christ about 10 years ago. He's been faithful in the church. Jobs are very scarce over here, and the man's trying to start a construction company. So I took that money and bought him tools. And now he's able to get work a little more easily, and it might slowly grow from there. So yeah, and that's what it's all about. We're not always putting bells on towers as Christians. You know what I mean? We need to be with the people and helping the people and putting real tools in real hands yeah. so they can have a real life for Christ. So, man, no, that's beautiful. So if you're out there listening, you're thinking about being a missionary, you're hearing a little bit about Seth's story. 
we already talked about deputation tips that work instead of just the traditional uh, model that doesn't work in my opinion we just talked about being a just steward so seth you get out to the mission field you do it in super fast time talk about what happens when you hit the field now you have all these dreams and you come out of college and you're excited you've been thinking about this for 20 something years talk about now what it's like from the perception to the reality let me make one more comment about deputation and yeah, you can absolutely. find I, I have a lengthy article on that on my blog it's called son of i don't know if we'll put that in the show notes so people can click on but son of yeah. carry spell that out too and then we'll put in the show notes son of carry s-o-n-o-f C-A-R-E-Y.com. It's William Carey. I am one of his spiritual descendants, or at least I want to be. <laughs> Sonofcarry.com. But I wrote an article on raising money or wasting time. Some people have told me you need to have a good attitude about deputation or these kinds of things. And I would say you, you should not have a good attitude about inefficient or foolish practices. Now, if God puts you in a hard place, yeah, have a good attitude. But if you are choosing to put yourself in a place that's inefficient, a bad attitude might actually help get you out of there and get you to a place where you can have a biblical, thoughtful, wise, good attitude rather than a blind, um, uh, positive, I'm just going to think positive all the time. Well, why think positive if you put yourself in a foolish position? Maybe by, by thinking a little more carefully, you can put yourself in an easier position Easier for yourself and easier for your wife. What wife says, wow, I'd really like to live out of a minivan for three years. So let me then move, move here. I got, to, I got here to South Africa in 2004 in June, about 16 years ago. And I moved to the northern province. Now, South Africa is like America in the cities. It has a very developed European city infrastructure. So if you go to Johannesburg or Cape Town, it's rich. In fact, many African cities, probably a lot of Americans don't realize this, but many African cities are developed, they're advanced, there's high-speed internet, there's drive-throughs. Now there's McDonald's. There wasn't McDonald's when I came, but now there are. There's even McDonald's. I think even in, in the city, there's a Pizza Hut. Um, not, that wasn't here when we came, but they did have, it is developed. But what I wanted to do is move to the rural area, to the area where they don't have title deeds, to the area where they don't have cement roads, to the area where most people don't have jobs, to the area where people don't speak English. So I did that in 2004. I moved, like I said, about an hour from Zimbabwe, but still in the country of South Africa, in the northern province called Limpopo. And I started working in a village called Mashamba because there was a man who had become a Christian there and had started a church of about 12 people. So I started there trying to learn the Sangha language. In English, we call it Sangha, but uh, this is fascinating to me. I hope it's interesting to you. I, I love language. The languages in the sub-Saharan region, there's about 800 or so, and they're called Bantu languages. That's from the Zulu word for people. And whites classified those languages when they originally wrote them down as people languages or languages that all have the same structure. So all of these languages work with classifications 
for the noun. So every noun fits in a classification and there's 15 of these in all the different languages. So there's the Shona language, the Tsonga language, the Venda language, the Zulu language, the Tswana, the Ndao, the Chichewa. All of these languages, if you learn one, it's not a big jump to learn the next because they're all broken down in these classification systems. When I got here, I couldn't figure that out because there's a Bible in Tsonga, but I couldn't find a grammar book in Tsonga. So there are people who know English and know Tsonga, but they didn't know the grammar of Tsonga. So I had to try to ask questions to learn. And for about six months, I couldn't speak clearly. I could say individual words like ribze for rock, but I couldn't, I couldn't figure out how to say my rock. And then one day I was in an Indian shop over here. Uh, there's, there's a lot of um, ethnicities who are broken up by their ethnicity because South Africa was divided in the apartheid system. So that still endures today in that all the Indians live in one area, all of the whites live in one area, and the blacks live in another area. Now that's starting to break down, but in general, there are still today what everyone over here calls Indian shops because they were started by Indians during the time when the, the, the ethnicities weren't allowed to integrate. And of course, that was terrible, and I rejoice that, that's, that that segregation is gone. But in the Indian shop, I found this little book of about 100 pages written by one of the missionaries from about 70 years ago who translated the Bible. And it's a grammar book, and it, it was the oh, man. key. I've been here eight months. I'm speaking like a baby. And now, now I can get it. Now I can, I can start to understand the language. So six months after getting that book, I was able to write out a sermon word for word. And I worked at that until I almost had it memorized. It took about three months to write this thing out. I wrote it in English and translated it with a language helper. Then I go to the open air in this, in this village of Mashamba, and I invited a bunch of kids to play soccer and get them all to play. And then I stand up and quote this sermon, April 2005, um, about two months, three months before I get married. And that was the first time I preached uh, in Tsonga because I finally was able to get the key, that grammar book. Uh, the earlier missionaries, they would take four, five, six, seven years before they could crack open the language enough to preach. And I was able to get that grammar book standing on the shoulders of great men before me. And, you know, people, if you have a Bible in your language and a pastor who knows your language, you need to thank God. Most of the languages in the world, 4,000 languages out of 6,000, now there's almost 7,000 living languages. Uh, over 4,000 of those languages do not have a Bible in their language. And many of those language groups don't have a Christian pastor. Thankfully, even though it's a large number of languages, most of those languages only have a few thousand people, say 50 or 100,000 people that speak the language. So it's only about 10% of the earth that doesn't have, of the world's population that doesn't have a Bible in its language. But if you do have a Bible in your language, man, it was blood, sweat, and tears that got that. 
and you need to thank God constantly. My children, when we thank, when we praise God at the meals or pray for the dinner, my kids will commonly say, thank you for giving us a Bible in our language. Uh, and we probably all need to, need to do that. Oh, absolutely. And we're going to talk about your kids too. We're going to get into some stories of living the life as a missionary and how it includes your family. So let's talk about a big part of that. So how do you meet your wife? You're single, you're passionate for God, you're going to the mission field. My wife, my wife is five years younger than me. I met her at a church. She's unusually gifted at the piano. I know everyone thinks their wife is unusually gifted. And um, she was playing at a large church and she's skilled and she was willing to go overseas and live in a poor place. I got a great wife, Amy, and the Lord gave us five kids. So here we are. We moved to South Africa in 2005, just after we got married. She's 21. Just turned, yeah, yeah, 21, just before she turned 22. And we moved overseas, and she's, she's a great blessing to me. So we've been here about 16 years now. And my kids commonly go on evangelism with me. They are at differing levels in their language ability. Caleb, my oldest, is the best. He's, um, I would say he's fluent, but he, he's, not, he's not fluent because he can speak much better than he can understand because he, the words he's most familiar with are all the words in the Bible. <laughs> um, but to talk about soccer, that he has to go really slow to talk about soccer. But the kids are learning. Um, we thought they'd learn very quickly, but it didn't come as fast as we had hoped. Even though we lived, we built our house in a village. So when we got here, my wife and I, we built our house right in a village. No white people, no, no cement roads, um, and just began to love the people. We invited them to our home constantly. Um, our table has had, it's got to be thousands of villagers at our table now. Tsongas, Vendas, Sutus. Uh, it's a great way to show love. It's a great way to communicate. We care about you. And it's a great way to learn. You learn the language when you're talking it over the dinner table. Um, and also you learn different languages. Now we can speak a little bit of Venda, a little bit of Shona. Um, those are different languages in our area. And you need all of those to reach people because not everyone speaks Tsonga. Yeah. And how far the village, like, to, so people can get an idea of what it, village life is like. What is the distance from the village to the main city? Okay, the, the main city is Johannesburg, and that's five hours away. Then there's a large city, about an hour and a half from where we are. And now we live in a town. We moved out of the village, and we now live in a town. And a town over here is a place that's going to have grocery stores. But, uh, for example, when we first moved here, you couldn't buy a nice can opener. The can open the nice ones you had to get from the city. You could get one, but it would break after two or three cans. Um, people would buy refrigerators. Would usually buy that from the city. They drive to the city to get a refrigerator. There'd be some that were sold here, but they're not very nice. Um, so now our town has been growing since we've since we got here in the last sixteen years, and capitalism has just caused this place to explode with growth. And now you can buy ice cube trays. You couldn't get that. And you might laugh at that until you're really, really hot on a day that's um, 42. What is that in Fahrenheit? 100 degrees or so. Uh, no air conditioning in any buildings. 
and you'd really like to have some ice. And that's then that you realize, you know, these ice cube trays, they're really nice. We actually brought some from the U.S. <laughs> and then, um, then they started selling ice cube trays in our town. Uh, we now live in the town because we – I have to explain that. Well, we hold on. Before village. we get there, let's do this chronologically because that's yeah, – I yeah. know the story. And let's – before we get ahead of ourselves. So you get married. You move to the village. And it's not like you just jump in your car and you drive to town to pick up groceries on Sunday. I mean, it's just to get anywhere. Like you said, there's no roads infrastructure. How we know roads is infrastructure. There's no communication as we know, you know, pick up the phone and call. So even if mileage wise, Seth's saying it would be 500 miles, it can be way longer in the sense of the distance you're driving. So if you're from a city, you know, somebody could say, oh, it's only three miles away. Well, that three miles in a city could take forever. And we're. Well, okay. That's a good point, David. That is definitely true for people in Cameroon, Malawi, Mozambique, Zimbabwe. I've been to each of those. Well, I haven't been to Cameroon. And when you, when you go to those places, yes, the infrastructure is so bad. But let's be clear South Africa is the richest of all the countries on the continent. And, and it's rich because it has a lot of resources, but a lot of the countries have resources. It's rich because there was a greater amount of economic freedom here. There was much, much fewer government laws. And because of that, private businesses started. So because of that, the cities over here all have nice cement roads. Not as nice as in America, but much nice. I mean... You can drive in five hours and go 500 kilometers, uh, 300 miles or so. In five hours, you can get there to the, to the capital city because there's a ribbon of highway right down from our town to the city. But then when you start to get out, now in other countries, like in Mozambique, wow, to go 500 kilometers, 300 miles, it might take you a day, it might take you two days because the roads are so bad. Uh, but in South Africa, it's significantly better. So, so talk about the village where you were living now then. What was that like? Yeah, we lived in Elam. And uh, there was a cement road that went from the town to another town. And it passed by Elam. So to get to my house would just be half a mile or a mile on a very bumpy road that's destroyed by rains. And yeah, it's just basically cut out by by cars driving over it. So we would turn off the cement road and drive a half mile into a village with houses all around us. And that's where our house was. And those roads were really bad. So we would have, I have a four by four pickup truck. And on that, yeah, we drive over that. And oh man, when your wife goes into labor and you've got to drive a mile <laughs> on a road like that, you got to plan 20 minutes to get to the cement road and two of my kids were almost delivered in the pickup truck because it took so long to get to the cement road and then to the hospital in the, in the city. Uh, but thankfully, they, they, it all worked out. All right. So now you're out and you're in this village. And let me just give everyone a little picture of what it would look like. So the village we lived in, uh, it's in South Africa. So they had slowly begun to get electricity to the villages. So many of the houses will have uh, a little line of electricity going in there. 
uh, not as nice, just like say a, a 20 amp or a 30 amp breaker for the whole house. But for them, they're thrilled. They got electricity and they have lights at night. So if you step out of my house and look around, you would see rondovels, which would be a, a circular hut. So to the right of my house was Chico. And Chico had two circular huts. And then he was trying to save up the bricks to build a square two-room house. Now that that house has been completed. And then beside him is another guy, Risimati. Risimati has four circular huts, and that's the house. So those kinds of homesteads are all around us. And then we're, we're the Americans in the middle trying to learn their language that we would invite people to our home. We had kids all the time in our yard. And so right there in the yard, we, I built the house myself uh, because I wanted to communicate a Christian worldview that work is a gift from God and requirement for biblical Christians. So we would plant grass ourselves. Myself, I would try not to employ people, not that I don't want to employ people, but that I want to communicate hard work over time will make your place beautiful. And so we slowly grew grass and flowers, and then others in our village would do the same thing. They, they planted grass and flowers, trying to follow that example. That's awesome, man. Now, talk about what was village life like in the early years? Uh, when I first got there, I did not put up a fence because I wanted to communicate, and I didn't have a dog. I wanted to communicate, we're your neighbors, come anytime. But the first night we were in the village, we had people walking right by, I mean, three feet from our bedroom window, shouting at 5.30, 6 in the morning, hey, Matimbo, Matimbo, calling to different people in the village. So I thought, you know what, we'd like a little more private. So we put a little chain link fence around our yard so people have to walk around. So we tried that a while, but then we had goats constantly getting in and the termites ate all the, the fence posts. So termites eat treated oil-baked fence posts. I didn't know that. They do. I can promise you they can eat treated <laughs> fence posts. They did it twice to us, so we put up metal fence posts to try to keep the goats out and the cows. We would wake up cows and goats eating our grass and our flowers that we're trying to communicate beauty in a Christian worldview. So we put this fence up and uh, – you know, that, that's just life. We have people constantly, even when we had a fence, we didn't have a gate. So people could come in. People would constantly come. How many times did someone knock on our door at 6 o'clock or 6.30 asking for copies because they knew we had, we had a copy machine? I had a computer and a copy machine. And people just knock at your door at 6 in the morning. Hey, give me a copy. So we try to set laws at what time you can come. And people would come for water. Uh, because we we would have we had water there, and then eventually we got a, a well. We drilled a well, so people would come all the time for water. Um, but it's it's uh, you it's a difficult thing to get used to people coming at all times, day and night, uh, asking for food, water, um, copies, CVs. A guy come to your house at six forty five and say, "Will you make me a curriculum vitae?" What do they call it in the U.S.? Resume. Uh, resume. Yeah. Resume. Would you come and, and make my resume? It's not seven o'clock. Who are you? I don't even know who you are. Yeah, I live in the village right here. I'm the son of Nongani. You're, look, 
I don't even know who you are. You're coming here at seven o'clock. You want me to make a resume for it? That kind of thing is it's common. And then, so now you're an outsider. You're coming into the village. You're trying to be nice. You're trying to show a work ethic. You're starting a church. Talk about the church. What did it look like when you started? Yeah. And then how did it when develop? When we first moved there, when we first moved there, we said, we've got to learn language. So I'm grappling every day, sometimes seven to eight hours a day, trying to memorize song of verbs, verb endings, uh, and these noun classifications, there's 15. You got you to you master these. You can't preach. Oh, <laughs> when you're trying to plant a church in a language that you don't know, you're going to make lots of language errors. So we have people in our home. I built our home so that it had a large living room, could hold maybe 20 people. So we start inviting people to come into our home. And I'm, I'm preaching and I'm, I take the book of Ephesians 5, um, husbands love your wives. There's a lot of wife beating. In fact, last year in, in one month's time, I stopped three men from beating wives right in front of me. Um, each time my children were with me. So, okay, so I'm preaching on Ephesians 5, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. So I'm trying to explain biblical Christian, a biblically Christian view of manhood and womanhood. And I intend to say, uh, ladies, let the men initiate, but there's no Tsonga word for initiate. So what I learned by reading the Tsonga Bible is that many times when there's not a word, for example, Shitsonga, our language has about 3,000 active words. Uh, uh, English a few years ago crossed a million active words. So Tsonga has far fewer words than English does, which means they don't have words for things like justify, redeem, many things. In fact, there's not even a clear word for right and wrong. So I'm here trying to preach. and I say, I want to say to the girls, don't take the initiative. So I just make up a word with the roots from other words. And I say, literally, women do not make yourselves to be first. But everyone starts laughing in my home. They bend over and laugh. It turns out that particular those roots, if all built together that way, literally, I was right. They do mean don't make to be first, but idiomatically, they mean don't make the first thing of the day. And the first thing of the day, apparently, in culture is put on your underwear. So I literally <laughs> told the women, don't be the, don't, don't, don't clothe yourselves in the day. Uh, so that, that, that was embarrassing and took a long time to get people under control. Uh, another time I was telling people who were getting ready to be baptized and I was trying to tell them, uh, hold your noses. The word for nose, listen to these words. Nose is nomfu. Sheep is nimfu. I don't know if you could even hear the difference. It's just a vowel that's toned differently. So I ended up telling everyone, hold your sheep. And uh, so everyone laughs again. But the best <laughs> one maybe is uh, uh, we're going to do a baptism. And the word for wet is sakama. So there's a verb ending that I added on to it to try to make it. And I say to them, okay, don't be afraid. You're just going to get into the water. You're going to get wet. But I added a verb ending to sakama 
that means the subject causes the action to happen. So rather than you're going to get wet, you're going to get in the water and you're going to make wet, which I'm sure you're already ahead of me, what that means. So everyone bursts out laughing and a boy says, I'm going to go first. (laughs) (laughs) Had to go to the bathroom, eh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's awesome, man. So what's it look like? You come to this village, you see this group, you're having them over your house. From when you got there and what year was it? 2004. 2004. So from 2004 to when you left the village, what did that look like? What did that growth look like? So we we started going door to door and we invited people to come to our house for a Bible study. And then we found kids and I was younger and I just played soccer with them in the streets and I would invite them to come play soccer in the street. And I brought a ball. So that's a huge thing. Usually they, if they don't have money for a ball, they'll just put bread bags, bundle them up, get 20 or 30 bread bags and push them together until they're a little plastic ball. And then they'll just play with that in the street. So I bring a ball. So everyone wants to come to my house. So they play soccer with me. And then I say, let's learn the Bible. Then we started a Saturday morning boys breakfast. My wife cooked for about eight boys, anyone who will come to learn the Bible. Then we started teaching English. Anyone who wants to learn English, come sit over our table, teach you English, and then teach you the Bible. My wife started a girls group. We tried road construction projects so that we could try to repair the road as a community. Um, We tried giving out food, but we found that that was really self-defeating. and, and it really destroys people's dignity if you have to give them things like that, especially when if you're not in a, in a place like an earthquake or a natural disaster, people can work and, and Africans can work. And don't believe the idea, oh, people are dying of starvation. No, they're not. People live for thousands of years. Uh, they've got jobs. They can work. They have a field. They can plow. So we invited all these people to our house, and it's like we're just taking – there's the dartboard in front of us, and we're just throwing every dart we can to see if any dart will stick. And eventually, we got a group of young people and two adults, and they, they started coming consistently to our house. So in 2007, we started meeting as a church, but there, we only had about four believers at that point. And then we started meeting on Sunday mornings at our house, and then we found a a uh, daycare uh, building with two rooms about half a kilometer from our house. We just walked on these dirt paths down the valley through a little, um, through a little river, jump over the river, hope the cows haven't gone there first. Cause they mush all those stepping stones up, step across. And hey, it was nice. Walk to church. You feel like a missionary and you gather people as they see the guy walking to church. You, Hey, come, come people go. So, we slowly started gathering a group of people. But what we found is that people can hear the truth that you're a sinner. Jesus died for sinners, believe on Jesus, but it takes a long time to, to, it takes a long time for them to understand what it means to leave the fear of evil spirits, the fear of witchcraft. It takes a long time to get the idea that words in a book are absolute truth and I've got to take those into my life and restructure my life according to those words. So we found on average that it takes two to three years of Bible studies before someone understands and is willing 
to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. So maybe when I first got here, I would have been more quick to accept the person's profession of faith. But now we look for fruit of repentance and we're patient. We're not in a rush to baptize people. Now we love to baptize people, but we're not in a rush. Um, So the church began slowly with just a few members and it grew. And that church in Elam now has about 25 members, all first generation Christians. Amen. And we turned that church over in 2017. There's not one who came from another church. They're all converts chipped out of the rock. And there's a national pastor at that church. Um, and they, all their ministry is done in Chitsonga. The music is in Chitsonga. We taught them how to play the guitar. I was given a guitar when I was in college. And my wife is amazing on the piano, but we don't bring the piano because we want the people to, to have a kind of music that they can repeat and reproduce but pianos are very expensive and take many years to practice. Guitars take a few months and don't cost very much. Awesome. Now, you had missionaries that joined you in the field. And talk about that. And number one, for people thinking about being a missionary, are you pro the group approach? Are you against it? And then let's get to the story with one of our mutual friends in the uh, crocodile hunter. Uh, I, I think I would say when it comes... Um, (laughs) when it comes to teams, I would say a team is like a car. Is it good to have a car? Absolutely. If you can get one, but there are bad cars. So yes, it is great to have a team if you can get godly men, but it is also dangerous because there's a lot of different personalities out there. And Paul and Barnabas couldn't even work together. In Acts chapter 15, even Paul and Barnabas broke up. So it's dangerous. It's difficult. Um, Many difficulties in missionary service have come because teammates could not get along. And it's been my experience that if you're going to go to the mission field, you you should have a great sense of humor. You should be willing to laugh and laugh at yourself. You should be... um, don't take yourself seriously. If people misrepresent you, ah, just laugh it off. Um, don't keep a ledger of all the things that you have done right and all the things they've done wrong. Keep a ledger of all the things you've done wrong and all the things they've done right. Or else you're going to be in, it's going to be constant tension. So we had, uh, we had uh, two couples come to join us, or a single man and a couple. Then the single man got married. Uh, the Schley lines are still here. Um, it's, uh, it's Village ministry is difficult. Learning the language is difficult. It is not, there's no Rosetta Stone. There's no language school. You have to kind of teach yourself, and it's, it's a hard task. So we, in 2006, uh, two other men came to join us, and we were we didn't want to stay in South Africa because it was too developed. We wanted to go much poorer. Um, now, my wife was glad to stay in a place where you could buy cheese, but I was eager to go to a much poorer place. No electricity, no running water, that kind of place. So we went to Mozambique, and we found those places. Probably four hours to cross the border uh, from South Africa into Mozambique, and then we drove another day 
into Mozambique, but probably only 200 miles, but the roads are so bad that it would take a day to go that far. You've got to ford rivers in your pickup truck and all these kinds of things. And that's, that's where we wanted to be. So in 2006, we, we scouted out Mozambique and we came to a village probably 800 kilometers into the interior of Mozambique where it's very poor. You could drive for two days and not see cement. Um, no electricity, no running water, no English anywhere. It's all Shitsonga, all mud brick buildings, uh, very small homes, um, no shops. That's, that's where we wanted to be. So we, we scouted that out. And then on the Lord's Day, there's no church that we can meet in. So we met as a group on the side of the Save River. Uh, where we were staying. And that afternoon, after we had worshipped in the morning, that afternoon we said, hey, let's jump in the river and take a, take a swim. And we had already seen the Tsongas were bathing and washing their clothes in the river. So we thought it was safe to swim across. It's probably 100 meters, 100 yards across from one side of the river to the other. And I jump in the river first, because I'm not as athletic as those other men. And I start swimming, but my, my wedding ring starts to come off. So I swim back to put my wedding ring on the shore. And by the time I turn back, the other two guys are way out in the middle of the, in the middle of the river. And then I see, I see a Tsonga man on the side and he shouts, Nguenya, Nguenya. And I'm trying to remember what is Nguenya. Hey, that's crocodile. And sure enough, there's a very large crocodile swimming toward these guys in the middle of the river here. And I shout to them, crocodile! And these guys, they're terrified. Even now, it sounds, it sounds like just a story when you tell it. But when you're in the water and the lizards come in your way, uh, and it's, it's deep, you can't put your feet down. So... One of, so I, I look around and there happens to be a little skiff beside me. When I say a skiff, I mean corrugated iron uh, and some wood. It's old and rotting. And I jump in that thing and grab, there's a pole beside it that they use, not a paddle, a pole just to push off the bottom. So I pull out to the middle of the river and I only find one of the guys, Paul. I pull Paul into it. Where's Dan? He turned and swam back. And as we turn the boat around and start to head back, we see Dan clawing his way up onto the beach with his hands and his legs are just in ribbons, um, bloody strips hanging down. And what in the world? He shouts out to us. Dan shouts to us from the riverbank. If he takes you under, put your hand down his throat. So we get to the shore. We pick the guy up. <laughs> put him in my pickup pick truck, fly back to the village. It's about five or eight kilometers away. No cement roads, no electricity, but there's a clinic there at this village. And we get back to this village and there's, there's a little cement building here, but they have no staff, no medicine. Um, there happens to be though a doctor who's visiting from Maputo. That's three days drive away. And the Tsonga doctor is there and he stitches Dan's crocodile cut 
78 stitches without anesthetic. Oh. Inside and outside. He had to stitch the muscle, not just the, the skin on the top. And Dan is screaming in pain. And then we ask, the, we ask him afterward, Dan, how, what happened? Dan gets pulled under by the croc. And while he's under the water, he remembers an episode of The Crocodile Hunter with Steve Irwin. And on that show, they had asked, Steve, what would you do if you were attacked by a croc? And he said, apparently, Dan's telling us here, he said, I'd stick my hand down his throat and pull that valve in the back of the neck, back of the throat. And sure enough, Dan remembers that. Dan is the only one who had seen that episode of The Crocodile Hunter. Dan was a, was a lifeguard, so he was a strong swimmer. And he's a big guy. I'm not a good swimmer, and I've never seen that episode. Yeah, and who would remember one, that at that moment, right? It had to be God. Exactly. I was the one who was supposed to be eaten because I was the first one out there, but I had that ring that was slipping off. I had to go back. So Dan remembers it. Then there's the doctor who can stitch him up. We get back to South Africa the next day, drove 16 hours, crossed two borders, we get back, it poured rain. It hadn't rained for about 11 months. It pours rain the day we're trying to drive back. And you think pouring rain in a nice cement road, that's no problem. But pouring rain on mud roads, it, we're in four by four constantly. You got to go 15, 20 miles an hour. And you got every bump. The guy in the back is, oh, oh, calling out. 16 hours. We get home get to a hospital. The doctor comes and says, there is a 98 or 99% chance this guy is going to have a bad infection and a high percentage chance we're going to have to amputate the leg. No infection. How in the world, croc, middle of nowhere, doctor with no anesthetic, no, nothing to clean it with. He's just got the needle and the thread. And didn't you say also, when we spoke privately, wasn't there something too that even God worked out a miracle where cross, there was borders to cross and there was something to do with the guards where you weren't even supposed to be able to cross and they let you? There was a number of things. I was trying to cut it down to not bore people. But yeah, we, we get to the Mozambique-Zimbabwean border and these borders are in the bush. So there's no cement on either side or very, very little. But the road, there's no cement on the roads. You're driving on these dirt roads. You're just driving through bush. And then suddenly you come to a locked gate and you can maybe drive through the bush and through the trees to get around the gate. But there's a, a office on the other side and the gate is locked. So we got there about five 30 and we're shouting to the people, but they close at five. So it's not over here where borders are 24 hours because there's very few people traveling through the bush. So we're shouting, we're begging so these people come out, they, they're not happy because they're off work, and we have to beg them. And eventually, when they see the guy's leg is ripped up, they open the gate and get us through. Then we're driving through Zimbabwe, and the, the, my friend's pickup trucks alternate. There's two pickup trucks. I'm driving the first one with Dan, and the second one, the alternator goes bad, so he has no lights. So he turns his lights off to try to get the thing 
the, the pickup truck go a little bit farther and he's driving with my lights. So he's behind me, say 20 feet, trying to drive with my lights to get along. And the guy who's bit by the crocodile says, leave him, leave him. And the guy in the other truck says, you can't leave me in the middle of nowhere with a broken vehicle, hundreds <laughs> of kilometers. I mean, I'm in nowhere's land, no English, no US dollars, no shops. You can't leave me here. So there was adventures like that, but the, the, Lord, the Lord got us through. Amen. And Dan, he didn't have to have his leg amputated and he lives fine today. He can play sports today. He's a pastor in Indiana. Amazing. Yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy. And then, so let's talk about this. You've been kind and gracious, not only to record this episode once, but now we're doing it twice. But um, you've had a ministry that God's blessed because of his goodness and you've got to go over there and spend time with the people and develop it and have a local pastor take over that church. And now you've, you mentioned earlier in the episode that you had to move. Describe why, not you had to move, but you did move. Describe the scenario and what happened, because a lot of people who want to be missionaries are going to be listening to this episode. And we're talking about advice and you know, kind of what it's realistically like and things for them to consider. But yeah, let me, there's a let me good side. Yeah, let me oh. just briefly say. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh no, no, no go ahead. Uh, to be a missionary, when I say missionary, I mean a church planter, like the Apostle Paul. So my goal is to plant churches by the by the Bible and by the power of the Holy Spirit, so that when the missionary leaves, the church still stands. So I'm not interested in bringing in lots of U.S. dollars and building a huge school or in drilling wells. Uh, my goal is I want to plant churches. So that's what we did in the first village. And right now, myself and my teammate, Paul, there's four church plants that we're working on right now. And our goal is just to see Tsonga and Venda and Shona people leading those churches. So that's our goal. That might differ from other people. And if you're interested in being a missionary, I would say to you, Read the Bible carefully to find out exactly what the Apostle Paul did, and then try to do whatever you can do that he did. Try it. Okay, if you can't speak in tongues, all right, but you can preach the gospel, right? Do what he did. Go village to village, preach, and then choose elders. So having done that, in 2014, December, we, we had planted the Elam Baptist Church, and we almost had the pastor prepared. So we were trying to decide where to go next. But we built our house, too, and we didn't have money to move anywhere else and build another house. So late one night on the 2nd of December, before Christmas, we were painting our kids' room, and we had moved all of our children into the garage. And... We left the side door open because we were washing our paintbrushes out there. And it's about 9.30 at night. And then my son comes in and shouts or says to me, Dad, Dad, there's men in the garage. They came in the side door. And I think it's our next door neighbor because he was an 18-year-old boy who had broke into our house repeatedly. So I came shouting to him, hey, hey, get out of here. And when I get into the garage, a pistol is stuck in my head because there was three guys who came in with guns and um, they weren't the next door neighbor. So these guys over the next 15 minutes 
they wanted money and we don't have money in there. I mean, if we do have money, it's in the bank, which I offered to take him to the bank to get uh, money, but they, they didn't want that. So they beat my wife and I over the next 15 or 20 minutes and attempted to take whatever valuable things they could. We were willing to give them anything. Um, but about halfway through, they, they put the guns to the kids' heads and threatened to, to murder our children. And you've got to understand that crime in this country, if you look at the casualties over the last 20 years since apartheid has fallen and since there's freedom for all, there's also a very liberal government there's no death penalty. There's very light sentences for criminals. And crime has shot through the roof all over the country so much that the statistics of the country are equal to some countries who have been at war. Like if you look at the number of people who've died in murders, it's equal to the number of people who've died in some countries just from war, like in Sudan or South Sudan. So in one sense, the country still is at war because of all the crime. So we anticipated, and, and the crime can be absolutely monstrous, um, torturing children, torturing wives in front of husbands, etc. cetera. Um, so they, they attempted to murder our children, and I called out for my boy right there. One gun is on my head. One gun is on the boy's head. And I said, Caleb, pray. And he was seven years old. I wrote this down right after it happened so I would not be in danger of exaggerating. Uh, I think God is honored by the truth. And my son prayed, God, save them. Open their eyes. They're blind. And I, I'm so grateful that God had done a work like that in my son's heart, that he would pray for his enemies like Stephen did uh, or like our Lord told us to. And the men immediately took the gun away from his head. But they did beat his mother, and they beat my, myself. My wife was pregnant with our fifth child at that time, and she was beaten in the stomach. And that child lived, even though we had had a number of miscarriages before. And God told that baby, you're going to live. And he's, uh, he's about to have his fifth birthday in two weeks. Thank, Amen. thank God for that. Uh, so they, they tried to take our money. We gave them our computer, our phone, whatever we could. They wouldn't take my car. And then they threatened to rape my wife. So we said, well, it's time to go out. The Lord's calling us home. So we started fighting back. And I took the gun from one of the men. And I pulled the trigger right in his eyes. But it was empty. So we used that as a tool to hit them with. My wife grabbed a broken piece of furniture they had broken and beat one of the guys over the head. And then the guy with the other gun pulled the trigger and uh, it fired, but the guy was six feet away and he missed. Uh, I don't know how you miss when you're six feet away. And uh, so we fought back and forth and they left. It was, it was prolonged, traumatic. Um, we were all bloody and they hit the arms and legs and head, etc. but the Lord kept us safe. Well, what's amazing about that story is not only the Lord kept us safe, but what happened from it, because we did come back to South Africa. We left South Africa for about a few weeks, but then we came back after visiting the U.S. We came back. I'm so glad to have such a great wife. And you left because you to... had physical trauma that needed to be cared for and not just emotional. I mean, you guys were physically needing it. Yeah. I'm just so grateful. My wife was bruised and bloody. 
And uh, she still says, I'll be a missionary. Let's go. And my kids, they're, the one who had the gun put to his head, uh, still says, oh, it's obvious why that man did that. He, he's not converted. If God would convert him, he'd be different. Uh, so there's no bitterness. There's no uh, anything like that. And I, I just thank the Lord. What, what grace. What grace. Um, but when we came back to South Africa, uh, we had thought that was his only bullet because there's a famous South African novel called Cry the Beloved Country by Alan Patton. And in that book, he talks about a, a black criminal who attacks a white man but only has one bullet. And we had just read that book. And we thought, ah, this guy's like that. He only has one bullet. But we found out about a year later that those same people, when they left our house, they went to a school and robbed a school. And at the school, they fired from 25 yards away. I was at that school talking to the man who was shot. After they attacked us at 9.45, they attacked that guy at 10.30 at night. From 25 yards away, at night, he was the security guard at the school. They shot him, and it went in and went out. They hit him hard. He fell to the ground and crawled off to the side. They threatened to kill him. After shooting him, they shot other times. David, they had a lot of bullets. A lot of bullets in both guns. What's that? A lot of bullets in both guns, correct? Well, I don't know because the one I pulled the trigger and it didn't shoot. Yeah. But the other gun, they they at least had multiple rounds. But when they were at my house, they shot once and then we charged them. Why didn't they shoot again? Why don't you just... Pull the trigger. That's all I have to do. And they weren't afraid to do it to another guy. And God stopped them. He said, it's not your time to go. But the most glorious thing was last Sunday, this is 2020, last Sunday at the Elam Baptist Church, Manansako is a woman. She's about 40 years old. She was at that church. I know because I just asked the pastor yesterday, who was at worship yesterday? And they said, so-and-so and so-and-so and Manansako. That's 2020 July. Who is this lady? She was our neighbor down the road who was in a false religion. And my wife did Bible studies with her from 2008 to 2014. But she wasn't willing to become a Christian. When we were attacked, because she was my wife's closest friend, she came up even at night, even though she was afraid. She came up to see us. We left the village. We went back to America. When we came back to South Africa, that woman shows up at our church. But I know she's not a Christian. And I say, hey, Manansako, why are you here? And she said, when you left our village, I went to the people in our village and asked them, why didn't you listen to those people? She means Amy and Seth. They came here to tell us God's truth, and you didn't listen. And now God has taken away the light. And then she said, I began to think that it was true with me, because even though I had done some Bible studies, I wasn't a Christian. And then she said, I began to be so afraid that God had taken away the light from me. So I prayed, if God will bring that woman back, then I will know that the God that is powerful enough to bring a white woman 
back to a poor village where her children could be killed right in front of her eyes. That's got to be the true religion. She has been a Christian now for five years because Mm. of Christian love from my wife. And I just thank God for the way he, for the way he saves his people. And I just rejoice that he has a thousand ways to save people. And he might save people by sending criminals to attack your pastor so that, so that you see what a Christian is and uh, what a blessing. Man, so we moved so- out of the village. All that to say, we moved out of the village. We now live in the town and I would really like to be back in the village. Uh, I drive there now. I, we're in a different village now planting a church. Uh, hey, Sunday, there was a huge crowd. We had no chairs left. And uh, they're starting to build on their own. Our philosophy for building is that we want the people to build themselves and feel the weight. We don't want to just take money from overseas and treat them as if they're children, as if they can't do anything. No, these people are smart and strong and clever. They just need to uh, do what everyone does. If you want a church building, you save and work over time. So that's how the building was built at Elam. It was about a $10,000 building. And... The first $5,000 was all from the people. And then at the end, a church here in South Africa took up an offering. He gave $5,000 to build the last, uh, put the roof on after we had built the walls and the windows. And we're doing something similar in the village now. We've got a shack that we're meeting in, but the believers in the church in the new village have dug the the trenches for a foundation. And there was the biggest group ever on the Lord's Day about 16 people and they seem serious. So slowly, but surely we're seeing the the work of God. That's awesome, brother. Well, you have shared so much with us today and I'm so thankful for you. And as listeners, hopefully we're really thinking about, Hey, is this what God has for me? Like there's excitement, there's fear, there's hardship. There's just pure joy. There's a lot in life where we're at right now. And there's a lot in the missionary life. And we need to pray about where God wants us. But before we go, in your story from the past, before we get to where you are today and where you're going and how we as the listeners can help you, is there anything else that we missed in the past that you want to cover or anything else you want to send out like thought-wise to consider to people who may want to become missionaries? Yeah, I'll just say this briefly. Don't forget the villages of the world. Missionaries commonly go to English-speaking cities, and their rationale is this. Paul the Apostle went to the cities. And I'm not against that, but if you're going to the cities that already has a Christian church, or if you're going to a city because it's not as hard as the village, then I would say don't forget that the majority of the world's population lives outside of cities. And someone's got to go there, even though it's very slow. The, the villages are small. You, you won't be known. You won't be famous. Um, this is the first podcast I've done, probably the last. I'll never be famous. I'll never be known. But, uh, as, but th- those people, God loves those people. And someone's got to get there. Amen, Seth. So where are you and Amy and your, where are you today and where are you going? And how can we help you get there? Uh, 
we're in, we're in a town, we're planting two churches right now. And my goal is to get back to the rural areas. I'd like to build a house back in the rural areas. And we would, we need teammates. We need people to come. Paul Schleyland is a fantastic teammate, but uh, there, there's a, there's hundreds of thousands of villages. So come if you, if you can handle living and working in places that are less developed with half the salary for, for the good of eternal souls, if you love language, if you can laugh at yourself without getting offended every third sentence, if you can take a rebuke and give a rebuke, if you can interpret the Bible, if you love souls, if you love Jesus, if you think that heaven and hell are real, come join us. We, we, would, we would love to see a revival, a great work of men and women going to the poorest places of the world. Amen. We'll put your, we'll put your email address and your website in links in the show notes. Um, and then also, what about you? Is there anything that you or Amy, your church needs? I know you have a great philosophy and that's why God blesses you. But if someone listening right now, we have people from all over the world. We have a lot of people who are business owners. A lot of people who want to help and contribute. How could they help you? How could they best help the Lord reach more souls? I try not to talk about money. Uh, one time after the after the criminal attack, we were having very great financial problems. But other than that, um, we don't talk about money, and God always gives us more than we need. So if you want to send money, I dedicate myself to use it very carefully. If you want to come visit, I would say. Come visit with this attitude. Do not think you're going to be a missionary when you come to visit. You can't. You don't even know the language. And it takes two to three years on average to see people understand the gospel and leave witchcraft. But come if you want to come and learn about what, what are the cultures of the world like? What is it like to, be a, to plant a church in a poor area? Why are some places poor and other places rich? How can we stop poverty? Hey, I would love to, to have you for two weeks in my home. Let's go everywhere together. Let's pray and fast and talk and, and cry and laugh. Um, come visit. Um, so I, I guess as the Lord leads you, if the Lord leads you to give, give to us and we will do our best to put it in a way that will impact eternity. If not, find a man, a woman who plants churches, who doesn't love money, who's not interested in the American dream. He's interested in the heavenly dream and, uh, and get that man to where he's going. Amen. And we'll put a link if you did want to donate in the show notes. And then you can also reach out to Seth and just stay in touch, man. I mean, Seth, I don't want to speak for you, but when I podcast, I'm in America, but we're behind the mic. So we might have a giant audience, but we only see the computer and our guests. Mm. So it's mm. awesome, right? But you're yeah. in a foreign country, and sometimes I'm guessing you must get lonely, right? Like having friends, talking, just kind of reminiscing even about America. It probably in a good way, I mean, in a way feels good, right? Or am I, am I assuming too much? Loneliness is very hard. Uh, so you need to be prepared to make new friends. And you need to, yes, loneliness is hard. And friendship takes so much work that few people do it. So, yes, it, friendship is a great gift. And uh, if someone takes initiative to me at a level six, I, I want to respond to a level eight because I know initiative is really hard. <laughs> um, 
Yeah. Awesome, man. Well, Seth, it's been a true honor as always, man. I love you. God used you in my life in so many ways. And for the listeners, um, I can't keep saying it enough, man. Seth's the real deal. Ever since I met him, he's been solid as the day is long and sincere and has a real passion for God and people. So you, you had a real treat today listening, and this is just scratching the surface. Um, Seth, is there anything else before we close this episode that you want to impart to the listeners or anything else we missed in your story? David, you are so kind. Thank you so much for being gracious to me. Um, it's it's uh, been, a, been a, uh, a joy to have a friend like you, and may the Lord bless you. And thank you for your kind and encouraging words. Oh, man, absolutely. It's my honor, and it's total truth. So I love you, brother. So to the listeners, thank you for being here today. And like our slogan says, don't just listen, but go do and repeat the good actions and have a great life in this life and through eternity. So Seth, thank you for being here today. To our listeners all over the world, thank you for being here today. Please don't forget to share this episode, like this episode, rate and review it in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google. But uh, again, more than anything, we all have on average 70 to 80 years. Let's use it and invest it well, not just spend those days. This is Dave Pascal with the Rock People Podcast. We love you and goodbye. The Remarkable People Podcast. Check it out. The Remarkable People Podcast. Listen. Do. Repeat. For life.